It is perfectly legal for federal agencies to make grants to foreign entities. Research and scientific good can come of it, but it requires oversight. The Government Accountability Office looked at how the Health and Human Services Department, and in particular the National Institutes of Health, oversees its foreign grants, or money that went to grant subrecipients in foreign countries like China. We get more now from the GAO's Director of Science, Technology Assessments and Analytics, Candace Wright. Ms. Wright, good to have you back. Thank you so much for having me again, Tom. And just on the question of who can receive federal grants, there is no one policy over which countries can get them that is cross-government. Is that correct? In other words, NIH maybe can give money to Chinese establishments. Other agencies may not be able to. So from the work that we've done in the past, we've certainly seen where agencies have made awards to foreign entities, including entities in China. But we also are aware that there are other agencies that have limitations on funding to certain foreign countries. For example, NASA not being able to provide funding to uh, entities in China. And I imagine the Defense Department would not want to give, say, an artificial intelligence development grant to someone in China, just to make an extreme example. I can't really comment on that because it's not something that I specifically looked at. No, we'll, we'll get back to this report. And I'm guessing this was prompted by the controversy or the questions surrounding the Wuhan laboratory. And so you were looking at the oversight. We won't get into the science of you know how the virus got out or anything like that. But what were you specifically looking for here in this particular report? So we were asked to look at the extent to which there was federal funding dispersed to three Chinese entities that included Wuhan University, Wuhan Institute of Virology, and the Academy of Military Medical Sciences. We were asked to identify if there was any federal funding to those three entities for the time period of calendar year 2014 through 2021. In order to do that work, we actually started with federal databases such as USA Spending to identify if agencies had made any dispersed funding to either of those three entities. And what did you find? So in our work, we found that um, there was one direct award from NIH, the National Institutes of Health, made an award directly to Wuhan University for $200,000, where we saw that that amount of money was dispersed. This was the only award that GAO identified that was directly from an agency to one of the three entities. We also identified that there was funding that was made available through seven subawards to the three entities, and these totaled over $2.1 million. These subawards were from awards that were funded by NIH, as well as U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID. So it's really then knowledge of the subawardees that is of concern here? Certainly. So there are reporting requirements for federal agencies to provide information on funds that are made to award recipients. That data is usually available in USA spending. What's interesting, though, is that the extent of subaward funding is not fully known. Award recipients are supposed to report data on first-tier subawards. There are some limitations, though, where that information on subawards below the first tier or if the subaward is below $30,000, is not required to be reported. We also identified in the course of our work that sometimes it can be difficult to fully understand the extent of funding that's provided because the funding could have been provided under a different name. And so in two instances, we found that there were two subawards that were made to the Academy of Military Medical Sciences However, the funds were actually awarded under the name of the Beijing Institute of Microbiology and Epidemiology. 
We're speaking with Candace Wright, Director for Science, Technology Assessment and Analytics at the Government Accountability Office. So it looks as if China then maybe hides a little bit of who might be getting, which is not really a lot of money in the final analysis here compared to NIH granting authority is, is tens of billions. And this was, you know, a couple of million maybe that went to these institutions. So what do these results say to us? What are you recommending? So the issue of subawards and the lack of visibility into them is something that's been a longstanding issue it's, or, and certainly a known issue um, in terms of the lack of visibility. And so what's really important is really for there to be continued focus about how do we ensure that we get visibility into federal funding as it goes, not just at the first award recipient, but as it goes through those lower tiers. In the recommendation that we made, it was really for NIH to think about ways in which it can continue to to enhance its oversight of awards, including foreign entities. We thought it was really important that they seek to identify different ways in which they can take immediate action to do so. We recommended that they take a look at their processes, their internal processes for how they oversee awards that involve foreign entities. And this was largely based on the work that we did, but also that of findings from the HHS uh, Office of Inspector General, who had also made recommendations identifying the need to improve and enhance their monitoring of award recipients involving foreign entities. And of that sub-award money that went to the Academy of Military, Medical Arts and Sciences of China, who was the primary grant recipient there? There were two instances where NIH had actually funded an award to Duke University that went to the Academy of Military and Medical Sciences. And then there was also an NIH award to what's known as the Regents of the University of California that also had a subaward that was made available to the Academy of Military and Medical Sciences. I will note that with respect to the NIH award to the Regents of the University of California, and the subaward that was then made to the Academy of Military Medical Sciences, it was actually terminated. So there were not actually any funds that were dispersed. Got it. Do you think that is it possible to know whether the Regents or Duke University knew who they were actually sending money to as sub? I mean, sometimes China hides entities. They had a police station in the middle of New York City that nobody knew what it was. I mean, they're pretty good at hiding their identity if they need to. So I will note uh, these particular awards, we were actually able to identify them in USA spending and then did have some interviews with these entities. It certainly does appear that there was knowledge that the funding would be going to these entities based on the documents that we were able to review. Oftentimes, award recipients are expected to include information with respect to what sub-recipients may be receiving federal funding for research. And this might be outside of the scope of your search here, but and let me know if it is. But could it be simply that academics, and they know other academics in the same field from around the world because they all go to their international meetings all the time, flying into the various capitals throughout Europe, Africa, Asia, and so on. And to them, it's just science to science as colleagues. And they might be not even aware of or just ignoring or naive to the political implications of, say, a subgrant from a Duke or a Regents of California going to a Chinese military institution. Well, we've certainly seen in our work that when you think about the research in and of itself, it is supposed to be a collaborative endeavor where you're learning from each other, sharing information. 
And so given that more collaborative approach, it's not always the case, perhaps, that researchers might be thinking about some of the national security or other types of implications. And so over the more recent years, there's definitely been a lot of uh, attention being paid to this issue, really to try to raise awareness from the researcher community more broadly about the potential for security concerns that they should be mindful of. And the recommendations you made to try to get better visibility into subawards deeper and deeper, did the two agencies agree with you? So our recommendation was only to NIH. And again, this is because of some of the reporting or, and findings that we had, as well as the inspector generals on some of the awards. And so the agency did concur and noted that it is planning to take action. And it had concurred also with the Office of Inspector General's recommendations. What we thought was really important is that NIH, in its response to the Office of the Inspector General's recommendations, noted that they were going to need to take some longer term actions that may not result in immediate changes. And we thought that it was really important that they, while they pursue those longer term efforts, that they really think about looking at their own internal processes and things that they might be able to do much more quickly, again, to be able to enhance their oversight and monitoring of awards that involve foreign entities. We think it's important that they look at those awards that involve foreign entities, especially foreign subrecipients, where we know that there is less visibility as you go down, trying to understand where the funding is going to different subrecipients at various tiers. Candace Wright is Director for Science, Technology Assessment and Analytics at the Government Accountability Office. As always, thanks so much. My pleasure. And we'll post this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a... um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in 
abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Looking Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Looking Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think 
you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. (laughs) So that's sort of the way, that's sort of the way that I kind of see all of that. That's brilliant. And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.